Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoyed the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. And so as we kick off a new semester, um, you know, I, I thought it was appropriate that we would take our seminary's theme verse and the verses surrounding it and uh, teach from those verses this morning. And those verses, this is a, an especially powerful passage of Scripture that answers this question. If we, as ministers of the gospel, are going to endure faithfully in the totality of our lives over the long haul, for better and for worse, through opposition and maybe suffering and maybe persecution, how will we do that? How will we be equipped? You know, the scriptures answer that question from a variety of different angles and in many different ways throughout the Bible. But in this particular passage, it's answered in an especially powerful manner uh, and, uh, by, the, by the Apostle Paul. So before we um, read that passage of scripture, let me take a moment to just sort of paint a picture of some of our future ministry contexts. Many of you in here, maybe most of you, will be called to minister in the West and probably in the United States of America. And we live in a situation that Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great German theologian, uh, described prophetically 70 or 80 years ago. We live in a so-called world come of age. And when he used this phrase, he didn't use it as a compliment. He used it descriptively. We live in the modern West where people think we have matured in such a way that we can manage life without reference to God. And even those of us who are believers have been so shaped by our cultural context that we often do manage life without uh, explicit reference to God. Our situation, I think, is well described by the great Jewish sociologist Philip Reif, who at the end of his life published a trilogy called the Sacred Order Social Order Trilogy, and uh, the first book of which is called My Life Among the Death Works. And in that book, he says that we in the West live in the midst of a historically unprecedented situation. So whereas most civil all civilizations until now have understood that sacred order undergirds social order, or when he says that, he means religion undergirds society, all civilizations have believed that religion shapes society, funds it, undergirds it, and uses cultural institutions and cultural products to do so, we now live in a historically unprecedented era where our cultural power brokers, many of them, have attempted to rip sacred order out from underneath so social order, leaving it to float on its own. So Reef says we're now in a situation where our cultural institutions and cultural products don't bring life and renewal to society and shape us well. Instead, they bring moral decay, uh, uh, death and social decay. And he said, this is not going to turn out well. It's already not turning out well, and it's going to turn out very badly. And Reef said that such a situation as this calls for a people who will speak and act responsibly and help our society recover the frightening beauty of the thou shalt and thou shalt not. What Reef did not make explicit, we will make explicit, that that people is God's people, the church. It's a situation that the Canadian philosopher um, Charles Taylor 
not the, uh, the tennis shoe, uh, Charles Taylor, but the philosopher, not to be confused, uh, described in his book called A Secular Age. He said, we live in a secular age. And by that, he doesn't mean that there are no religions or no believers. What he means is that uh, the secular imagination has so taken hold and gotten a grip over our societies that we live within what he calls the imminent frame. It's similar to what Bonhoeffer was talking about with the world come of age. We manage life without reference to God, and even beyond that, many or most people in the West find the Bible's teachings, many of the Bible's teachings, um, implausible and even unimaginable. I mean, how could you possibly believe that about sexual morality? How hateful could you be? How could you really believe that the Bible is inspired by God? It's just a collection of writings from camel herders and so forth over a period of a few thousand years. I mean, do you really think the Bible's inspired by God? And, uh, and so this is the sort of secular age in which many of us will minister, and we will face forms of opposition. We're not sure which forms. We're not prophets. But we will be opposed. Many of you will minister in overseas contexts, Muslim contexts, in the midst of a, a religion who has many warm-hearted adherents who will be kind to you and compassionate and warm, but the religion itself, Islam, is custom-built to defeat Trinitarian Christianity. It exists to do that. You may serve in pantheistic or poly polytheistic contexts where people find it implausible and unimaginable that there's one God who is a personal God who created everything and yet speaks to the people he created, created them in his image and likeness. It's just a foreign concept uh, to them. And you'll face opposition, ideological opposition, religious opposition, sometimes physical persecution. The Apostle Paul, when he wrote this passage, was in the midst of facing quite a bit of opposition himself. In fact, we know from 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-three through 27 <clears throat> that already by this point in his life, he'd been imprisoned flogged five times, um, beaten with rods three times, stoned, shipwrecked. He'd spent many sleepless nights. He'd gone through hunger and thirst and, uh, and cold. He uh, bore in his body's Galatians, in Galatians 6, he says, the marks of our Lord Jesus Christ, the marks of crucifixion. Just as Jesus was persecuted, so Paul had been persecuted. And he finds himself now in a Roman prison. And don't I mean, don't get in your mind an American prison, you know. He's not, he's not sitting in a heated cell block with, uh, you know, lifting weights and, you know, eating three square meals a day. He is uh, most likely in a hole in the ground, maybe 20 feet deep, uh, with no toilet and no light other than the, the ambient light filtering in uh, from above, no heat. He is alone, sitting in the middle of his own waist, this man of God, this is what he gets as the temporal fruits of his gospel ministry. And he's writing to his protege, one of, the, one of the men to which he will hand off the baton at the end of his life. And look at what all he's worked for and how he suffered for the Lord Jesus. And he said, all of this is nothing for the, for the sake of earning the, the, winning the prize and, and meeting the Lord one day. And he's going to hand off the baton. And, and so I think this epistle is just uh, very crucial that you see this great man of God, this great apostle. He's got a few things he can say to Timothy. And out of those few things, we're going to talk about one of the most important things today. And uh, 
And, and so what is it that he's going to say? The answer to this question, I think, gives us the answer of how Christianity, by God's grace, has endured for 2,000 years in the midst of opposition and how, if the Lord tarries, it will endure for another 2,000 years. It will not be defeated because Christ cannot be defeated. So let's read this passage slowly and, and uh, reflectively, and we'll spend a few minutes um, um, talking about it. Paul said to Timothy, but you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you, Timothy, must continue in the things you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so I think the central thesis or central proposition of this passage is something like this. Paul states it to Timothy by saying something like this. Timothy, if you are going to weather the opposition that you most assuredly will face and encounter as a minister of the gospel, you must, by necessity, build your life and ministry on the sturdy foundation that is the inscripturated Word of God. And so I think he, he makes this argument by means of three observations, and we'll take a look at those observations. So the first observation that he makes is just that the cr Christian life in ministry is done within a context of opposition. It would be odd, it would be an anomaly for you not to face opposition. Surely there are some people who have not faced much, much opposition in their Christianity. But this is the normal Christian life, to face opposition. He says, uh, again to Timothy, but you, Timothy, have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at places near you, Timothy, places very close by. Maybe you saw them at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So Paul begins by saying, listen, you followed my doctrine, my teachings, my ministry pattern, and uh, my Christian way of life. You've seen me do this. Paul's not bragging. Uh, you know, Paul often said that he was the, 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 the least worthy of, of everybody to be called as an apostle. What he was saying is, Timothy, you have watched me struggle to be faithful to the Lord Jesus in the midst of all these sorts of things, and you're going to face those too, and you need to be prepared. This shouldn't surprise us. What did Jesus say in the Gospels? He said, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Hebrews 11, the faith chapter, makes clear to us that God will not give us necessarily our best life now. 
And that some of God's most faithful people in Hebrews 11 at the very end, I think verses 35 through 39 maybe, at the very end, um, the writer of Hebrews says, listen, here's some of the greatest men and women of faith and look what happened to them. And I jotted some of these down in in the margin of my Bible. This won't be verbatim, but uh, the writer of Hebrews said they were tortured, uh, not accepting deliverance because they were looking for a better resurrection. In other words, they could have recanted and gained a resurrection of a sorts and get their life back, but they refused to recant because they were looking for a much better resurrection when the kingdom bringer, the Messiah, would resurrect God's cosmos and, uh, and, and his believers. Um, they faced, the writer of Hebrews said, mockings and scourgings. Uh, maybe uh, he had uh, Jeremiah in mind here, who was mocked over the course of his entire ministry. Chains and imprisonment. Uh, one thinks of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were stoned, they were sawn in half. At least one source says that the prophet Isaiah was put in um, a hollow log and they sawed him in half while he was still alive, according to that account. <clears throat> These men and women of God lived lives in which they were destitute, afflicted, and tormented. They wandered in dens and caves of the earth. This is not health and wealth. They did so, the, they did put the, the word of faith out there, and the word of faith brought fruit for the, for the cause of the kingdom, but it didn't bring them their best life now. It brought them the opposite of that in some ways, their worst life now. Um, persecution and, and even death. What Paul is saying to Timothy, he's saying, Timothy, listen, man, it is worth it. You've seen me go through this. You've seen me uh, struggle as an apostle to honor the Lord Christ in the midst of all of this, and you need to be ready to face it too. So Christians, seminary students, first-time students, faculty, staff, all of us, uh, we need to know that if we are living the Christian life the way the Lord intended, publicly and faithfully, we can expect to be opposed. And that is okay, because Christianity is most often historically lived out from the margins from the social, cultural, and political margins. And that's actually where Christianity is most comfortable, where it often flourishes the best. And so we can embrace the moment instead of resenting it. We should embrace the moment instead of resenting it. So that's uh, uh, Paul's first observation. Then his second one is in verse 13, and this verse is kind of a hinge, where Paul turns, begins to turn the corner to give it, a, he, he did something descriptive, sort of, and then he's going to do something prescriptive. And this is where he's turning the corner. Uh, But I think this stands as its own observation, verse 13. But evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. So as best I can tell in the scriptures, every time the phrase evil men is used, it is uh, used in relation to people who are clearly and explicitly outside of uh, the circle of faith. These are people who oppose the gospel. And people who oppose the gospel are going to increase. Paul said there's also, you know, going to be imposters. And uh, what Paul is talking about here is he's saying there are going to be people who seem to be inside of the circle of faith. And Timothy, this is going to surprise you a little bit more when it happens. It's going to disappoint you more. And sometimes it's, it's going to make you angry. But there are going to be people who seem to be inside of the circle of faith and they will come against you and try to defeat you. They will come against the gospel, and because you are for the gospel, they will come against you. Where do we find evil men and imposters? You know, I think we, sometimes when we hear evil men, we think of serial killers and people who go in and shoot up schools, people who are in prisons. 
you know? But to, you know, evil men are found everywhere. They're found in public universities teaching our 18-year-olds. And they're found in the government socially engineering our society against the cause of the gospel. They're found in businesses as CEOs of major corporations found in the last 20 or 30 years. Or they're found, uh, and these are just examples. They're found everywhere. Evil, evil men are found everywhere. Where do we find imposters? Well, we find imposters in Christian churches, Christian families, Christian seminaries, Christian universities. You know, it's possible in a room this size that some of you are imposters and that maybe you have even fooled yourself, you, that you think you're inside the circle of faith, but you're not. Never embraced the Lord Christ. You've never been brought to your knees in repentance of your sin and never realized that there is nothing at all that you could ever do to save yourself other than to embrace the Lord Christ. It's especially easy, I think, in America to be an imposter in the South. We've got this cultural Christianity, this sort of southern fried religion, where, you know, you're supposed to walk the aisle when you're five and be baptized, or you look like you're not a good family, and where you're supposed to attend church, even if when you leave church you make it very clear you're not a believer. You know, often in many ways, being a member of a church is socially advantageous. It's especially easy to have imposters, and it could very easily be the case that we have many churches in which most of the members are imposters and unbelievers. Don't be surprised, men and women of God, if, as you are giving witness to the gospel, the people who oppose you the most vehemently, the most painfully, and the most effectively are people inside of the circle of faith. When you find yourself surprised, remind yourself that you should not be surprised. My experience is that it always feels surprising, even though we know uh, that it's the case. So that's Paul's second observation, that the opposition that you will surely face comes from within the circle of faith and out, uh, outside of it. And here's where he tells Timothy what to do. So given that fact, Timothy, given, you know, the rosy news that this is what you are going to face in your life, here's the good, here, you know, here's the good news. But you, Timothy... <clears throat> must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus and Timothy. Don't forget that all Scripture is inspired by God, it's given by inspiration of God, New King James says, and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So here's what he says to Timothy. He says, Timothy, these people will oppose you, and you will oppose them with the gospel that you find in the Scriptures. And how did, how did you learn uh, these things? You learned them from me, from your mother and your grandmother. These things, we, we know that's how Timothy learned the Scriptures. And while, when Paul talks about the Scriptures, we know that he had an eye on the, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. And uh, Jesus stands at the center of the Hebrew Bible. It is a, Paul took a, a Messiah-centered hermeneutic when he interpreted the Hebrew Bible. And so uh, the, the Old Testament can make you wise for salvation through Christ Jesus. 
but he also had an eye on the developing New Testament. He was saying, Timothy, these writings inspired by God are the ones that you should cling to and embrace and trust. And when he says that the scriptures are inspired, if we want to give a really accurate translation here, the best way to translate this, it's a difficult thing to translate because it's a phrase, something like God breathed, that the scriptures are God breathed. We have difficulty in English because God breathed would probably be translated spirated, but who in the world knows what that means? <laughs> you know, or it could be translated expired, but normally that means, uh, you know, someone who's died or food that's just rotted. And so we want to sort of shy away from that translation. And so it's usually, you know, translated inspired. But really it's God-breathed that all Scripture is like the very breath of God. And it is good for four things. And I think these four things coalesce to show us a, a sort of a coherent pattern of what the Word does. Um, that it um, is profitable for doctrine, you know, for telling us uh, what is right, and to show us the path of righteousness, so for doctrine, for reproof, for showing us the ways in which our feet have gotten off the path, for correction, how to get our feet back on the path, and for instruction in righteousness. And that's just the ongoing process of this happening over and over and over again. As Lord willing, we become conformed more and more to the image of his, of his Son, who is himself the express image of God. This is the pattern of the Christian life, that God, by means of his inscripturated word, makes us ever more and more like Jesus. You can't find Jesus outside of the Bible. There's a dozen or so references to him, historical references that he existed, and a few things about him. But if you want to follow Jesus, you can only follow him by following Christian scripture. That's what Paul was saying to Timothy. And if you want to be sustained, nourish yourself with Christian scripture. Soak yourself in it so that the narrative of the Bible is the master narrative that governs your life rather than the narrative given to you in your history textbook. That's not the true narrative of the whole world. The Bible is. An American history textbook is a bit player in the grand sweep of history. You want the real history of the world, read the Bible. You want a narrative of the world through which you can really and truly position uh, if, if events and adjudicate things. Don't buy into the secular narratives that take root on your favorite uh, cable news networks anywhere on the spectrum. Reframe the events of the world through the eyes of Scripture. Why do we do this? Paul says to Timothy that the man of God, we can read the person of God, may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So seminary student, staff person, faculty member, all of us, if we're going to be complete in Christ, and if we're going to be thoroughly equipped for every good work, and only God knows the good works that he will call us to do in the context, we do not know our future. And so God is equipping us right now for things that he has for us in the future that, of which we are not yet aware. And so if we will be prepared for those things, completely, thoroughly equipped for those things that God has for us in the future that we do not yet know, then we must right now be soaking ourselves in the scriptures, immersing ourselves in the word of God, allowing the Bible's master narrative to shape our interpretation of the world, our understanding of the self, 
the totality of our lives so that we can endure over the long haul. I try to follow a fourfold pattern um, during my devotional times. Um, a little uh, secret that maybe I shouldn't confess is that I have a hard time paying attention. Um, I would, I'm, as they would call it these days, ADD. So I have a very hard paying, time paying attention when I'm, I'm reading a text, including the Bible. Uh, but even, uh, you know, so one of the things that I do, uh, for me personally, is I memorize scripture. And as I'm memorizing, because it helps me to really lock my mind in, I try to follow a fourfold pattern uh, that I've borrowed and adapted from other people in church history, and that is um, read, reflect, pray, obey. And so as I'm memorizing or reading, um, you're doing this slowly with the notifications turned off on your phone, without your Outlook, Outlook uh, inbox on, just close it, and without your mind on anything else, just listening, carefully attending to the word of the Lord. The Bible doesn't tell it, us to read the Bible very often. It tells us to listen to the word of the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't read it. It means that even when we're reading it or when it's being read to us, we should remember that we are listening to the living words of a living Lord. And if it helps you to remember that, imagine him seated across from you in the room speaking these words to you. Bringing ourselves into submission to the words of our Lord. So we're reading the Word. We want to reflect on the Word, which is we want to think about it, meditate on it, be fascinated by it. I mean, why would we not be fascinated by the very words of God? So read, reflect, pray. And so we can pray the Scriptures back to God. You can be very certain that you've prayed a good prayer if you pray the Bible back to God. This is really sort of what it, it is kind of a, a very good translation of what it means when Jesus, when we talk about praying in Jesus' name. It means praying in conformity with his name and what he stands for. And the way that you can be absolutely and utterly sure of that is when you are praying the words of God. Read, reflect, pray, and obey. So how can this passage that I've read or reflected on how can it shape my life? And every passage of Scripture, now, no matter who, how irrelevant it might initially seem, can and will have import for our lives. And so read, reflect, pray, and obey. We can't do these things on our own. We can't do anything on our own in the Christian life. We lean on Christ uh, to, the, to do those, uh, those things in us. And so let's go back for each of our three points and just briefly, in a sentence or two, relate those points to Christ himself. The first one had to do with that we, we, we do ministry in the context of opposition and sometimes even suffering. So we do serve a Lord who can and empathize with us in any temptation or any type of suffering, I mean, and more so than we would ever suffer. He was the cosmic king and ministered as a homeless, itinerant preacher and then was slaughtered uh, you know, innocently. That will never happen to us. And so he can empathize with anything we experience. But more importantly, I want to say for the moment that he suffered so that our suffering would be limited to the, to the present age. So when we suffer, we suffer knowing that our suffer is limited to the present age. And one day he will return to set the world to rights. And he will institute a one-world government and a one-party system with him at the head. 
and justice will roll down like the waters, and there will be no more pain, and no more tears, and no more suffering. And that is our hope, a certain hope. How do we relate Christ to the second point, evil men and imposters? There are numerous ways, but here is the most important way, I think, that every single one of us in a pew today were at one time evil men and imposters, and that our God, in his goodness, took our name, evil one or imposter, on his shoulders on the cross, and in exchange, gave us his name, Righteous One. And there is no more beautiful truth in all of the world. And if that ever ceases to be unsettling, beautiful, ironic, overwhelming, we'll know something's gone wrong. And so let's not lose the majesty of that, that we were the evil men and imposters. And only because of Christ, we are now not evil men or imposters. And then finally, Scripture. How does Christ relate to Scripture? Well, uh, name the ways. How much time do we have? But uh, maybe we can start by saying this, that he is the axis of the Testaments. He is the linchpin of the canon. He is the towering actor in the creational and redemptive narrative set forth in the Scriptures and the towering actor in world history. And is he, and he alone, who created the world, the Father through Christ, created the world, and he, and he alone, who could save us and did save us and gave us the name Righteous One in exchange for evil and an imposter, and he, and he alone, who stands at the center of Scripture and at the center of history, and will return one day to set the world aright. And in the meantime, in this time between the times, it is he alone, through the Spirit, who will enable us to weather the opposition that we will certainly encounter as ministers of the gospel, and that he will work in and through the events in our life and our study of Scripture and our loyalty to Christ to build our life and ministry on the sturdy foundation that is the inscripturated Word of God. And so let us together pray today that God will sow his word deeply into our hearts, the innermost recesses of who we are. The heart in the Bible is a central organizer of the human person. And although it is deeply private in one way, it radiates outward publicly in every way. So let's pray that he'll do that and that he'll work in and through our courses at the seminary and the relationships that we form, our church membership, our family time, our chapel, through all of these things to make us faithful servants of the Lord Christ uh, like the Apostle Paul. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in the name of your Son, and only because of him do we have a claim on you that for you to hear our prayer. But because of him, we come boldly before your, com your, your throne with confidence. So we come before you today uh, praising your name, ascribing all glory and honor and power to you, thanking you 
that you stepped in our place on the cross and that while you were defeating the, uh, the evil powers, Christus Victor, you are stepping into our place through your shed blood, penal substitution, taking our name, evil one and imposter, upon yourself and in exchange giving us your name, righteous one. And so we pray that more and more, ever more closely and more truly, our lives will reflect the label that you've given us, that we will conform more and more closely to your Son, the Righteous One, so that our life will more closely reflect what you call us, which is Innocent One, one who's been declared innocent and righteous. Thank you for your shed blood on our behalf. Help us to never lose the majesty of it and to, to never lose the majesty, Lord, of the fact that you speak to us uh, through your inscripturated word. So, Father, we pray these things in the name of your Son and the power of your Spirit. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.